three-dimensionalized making up a, a verb there, our guest. It's not just about what we touch on in the program. It's the other elements itself. And, Lucy, bravo to you for the work that you're doing. I, I look forward to getting into it on the program. and Hopefully you can hear me. Welcome to Equal Footing. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, and you did pronounce my name, my last name correctly. <laughs> oh, well, I'm going to get to call you Lucy for the rest of the show, so hopefully I don't have a chance to do it correctly. As someone who has an odd last name, I, I, uh, I try to get it right. We're also joined by Robert Wells, and Robert is a renowned federal criminal defense attorney, 43 years of experience in United States District Courts in the Second Circuit uh, Court of Appeals as well as all levels of state uh, courts. He was trained at Jerry Spence's Trial Lawyers College. He's the past president of the New York State Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. He is a member of a uh, number of board of directors and executive committees in, on this area, and he's acted as an instructor for United States courts teaching lawyers all across the, the country, in San Francisco, Dallas, Los Angeles, Portland, Chicago, Atlanta, et cetera. Uh, Robert's bio is, is, is very impressive and very long. The point is his experience across the spectrum. He's instructed for the FBI. He's worked with judges and, and prosecutors and defense attorneys looking critically at this area of alternative sentencing and whether prison cells cure. So, Robert, welcome to Equal Footing. I know you guys, Robert and Lucy, I know you guys see eye to eye. You're in unison uh, on the topic of wet cells cure. But I want to start, give us a couple of minutes, Robert, get us started on why incarceration is so appealing. Why is it the cornerstone of, our, of uh, the punishment side of our criminal justice system? Yes, well, um, sometimes when we look at um, the criminal justice system, we're looking at strangers uh, who are charged in courts of law, and they're charged even if they're presumed innocent with perhaps terrible things. And when we uh, look at them, it's easy to demonize them. And the easiest thing to do then is put them away, get them away from us, from our society, from people. And, of course, uh, like I was saying, the easiest thing to do is to do that with people we don't know or don't know about or don't know the story of. And what I've learned over time is those stories lead us closer to justice, which is rarely found inside of the penitentiary. Yeah, I, let's, though, start by honestly addressing what I imagine is in a lot of listeners' minds that the system of incarceration goes back thousands of years. As incidentally, since this is a, at least started as a Jewish network and we have a lot of faith, a lot of listeners that have faith at the core of the way they organize their lives, myself included, it isn't part of what we believe should be in the uh, kind of panoply of, of punishment, uh, biblically, um, incarceration is considered inherently wrong, that there are other forms of punishment, many of which we don't agree with in modern society, corporal punishment, et cetera, but certain, certain, certainly we do believe in financial punishment and restitution. And we know that incarceration anthropologically goes back much further than the Old Testament. 
has there is there any precedent, Robert, for non-incarceration alternatives? Or is this really a discussion in the crime and punishment or crime and punishment arena that is truly contemporary? Something that's our generation or a couple of generations old, or historically, if we go back hundreds or thousands of years, have there been alternative models to punishment that fit into modern society? That isn't you know cutting off someone's hand if they if they were a thief. Or you know, beating someone with with you know, fifty lashes. Yes, I, I think that as time and our society has progressed, we've come to see that punishment in the severest forms, especially, doesn't work. Um, you know, uh, putting people in jail over over drug offenses, for instance, we we find the war on drug has, drugs has not been won in all the decades of doing that. And we also find, when we look closer at uh, punishment, is that we're not very good at it. Uh, We tend to punish uh, people who are poor, people of color, people who are of different ethnicities, uh, in ways that we don't punish perhaps people we think are like us more. So what what we find is we... We're not good at it. We're not even-handed at it. We're not just at punishment. And and we're finally coming to see. I mean, look at the courts that are developing uh, uh, courts that address different issues. We have veterans' courts. Instead of saying, well, a veteran who commits a crime has got to go to jail. Well, it might be other reasons and other uh, things that have to be looked at. Uh, the drug courts themselves are now being established to try to steer people more into treating the causes than it is of just punishing them. So, of course, if we punish them hard enough, they'll never use drugs again. We've learned these things don't work and that we're not good at them. Okay, so let's assume... This since this is the prevalent system of of punishment in the criminal justice context, at least in our history, in American history, uh, let's assume we need to cast out for alternatives. Lucy, educate us, give us a really basic primer on what federal and state courts in the United States have agreed to on occasion, at least so far, as alternatives to incarceration. Yes, absolutely. So with the Center for Community Alternatives Program, we're actually one of the pioneers for ATI programming in New York, um, and the work has significantly expanded uh, over the over several decades. Um, at the core of ATI work is really offering community-based services that place a focus on wellness, healing, recovery, and relationship building. And we do so through an approach that's motivational and highly individualized and recognizes the experiences of trauma and how those intersect with particular needs and behaviors that connect back to the criminal legal system involvement. So how our organization gets involved is really getting referrals from um, different parties, um, most often than not defense counsel, and social workers, and engage in this process of assessing and interviewing an individual to really get a sense of what are those particular needs challenges, but also balancing that with their strengths and any mitigating factors. And then returning back to the court with a proposal, with a proposal of suitable programming that can be utilized 
as an alternative to incarceration and as a way for a person to receive services and support as opposed to being placed into a system that will re-traumatize them and not address okay. any so, of those underlying needs. So mental health uh, support, because it, there's a proven statistical connection between uh, recidivism and a lack of a, of a mental health support system, which is, is deficient in, in, in many of our jails and prisons across the country. Community involvement, uh, you know, supportive housing and transitional programs. This, this I've, this I've heard of. Is there something that a listener might not have heard of? Some, some out of the box concept around an alter, alternative incarceration? Or is it, is it that, that blocking and tackling, you know, heavy lifting of, of community integration, uh, and rehabilitation that's really at the essence of alternatives to incarceration? I mean, I think with this point, it's important to really talk about um, what we mean when we, when we say trauma, right, and, and understanding the prevalence of trauma uh, with, that disproportionately impacts the population that we work with, right, and recognizing the different ways that it manifests, the correlation with addiction. Addiction. Um, how right. it impacts how, how, how the person how it changes certain perceptions of how you're navigating through the world, your relationships with others. Um, so as organizations, when we talk about trauma-informed care, like what does that really mean? That means the recognition of that the majority of participants we're working with are coming with that need. And then putting in systems in place where you're creating a safe environment, an environment of empowerment, and an environment that focuses on healing. Okay. You're on equal footing. We're talking about alternatives to incarceration in the criminal justice system. Do prison cells cure? Does incarceration work? And we're going to take a break in a, in a, in a minute or so. We're going to come back with some statistics. Participate in this conversation. Give it your best shot. I'm sure there are listeners out there saying, yes, you have to put them away. People are dangerous to society. They're dangerous to the people around them. The only way to really solve it, it sucks. It, it, it hurts. They understand it costs a lot. We understand that it causes pain. It rips families apart. There may be, maybe we need to improve mental health resources, uh, addiction resources in prisons and improve conditions. But you know what? We do need to send people away. I'm sure there are people thinking that. Call in. Express your views. We're on with two activists and experts in this area that can take it. They've heard it before. 718-303-9090 is the phone number to call. 718-303-9090. You can also text or WhatsApp a question or comment to 917-428-4062. That's text or WhatsApp to 917-428-4062. And as always, you don't have to call on an attributed basis. You can say your name. You don't have to. And we welcome both questions and comments uh, in our discussion here on alternatives to incarceration with Lucy Crisiliu and Robert Wells. We'll be right back on Equal Friends. Won't you help to send these songs of freedom? Because all I ever have redemption songs. One of our Important sponsors for Equal Footing is Mechanical Art Capital. Thank you, Mechanical Art Capital. You've been with us since the beginning. Mechanical Art Capital offers two-day at max, sometimes same-day financing to watch collectors and watch dealers anywhere in the world. 
unlock the value of your timepiece collection or your inventory if you're a dealer through Max buyback contracts. They're very easy, a few pages long. You can download the Mechanical Art Capital app from the iPhone App Store or on Android. That's Mechanical Art Capital. And you can have your watches and collections appraised free of charge. And the app will also show you how you can raise cash from those watches that you had appraised. You can get your cash in as little as a day. You can call as well, 833-209-0972. That's 833 833- Two zero nine zero nine seven two, or go to mechanicalartcapital.com. I've been caught, but I'm keeping on, keeping on I've been told, All right, you're back on equal footing. We're talking about a topic that is very close to my heart. It's no secret to anybody who's listened to this program over time, I am a formerly incarcerated individual. I was incarcerated for 10 and a half months from towards the end of 2015 to midway to, to through 2016. It was hands down the most horrible experience of my life. I was incarcerated pre-trial uh, for a uh, conspiracy to commit a securities and accounting fraud charge. The way that it went down is I was arrested overseas while I was on a very short five-day business trip, and I spent ten and a half months in a horrible prison where I was assaulted. A number of horrible things happened we've talked about before on the program. Obviously, it affected my life directly, personally, but it's also led to a desire to advocate on criminal justice reform. I think there are myriad ways to punish people. Incarcerating them is a particularly brutal way, and and in particular if you don't keep uh, people safe while they're incarcerated. We're talking about this concept. Do prison cells actually cure? Do, does it work? Does the system work? We're on with Lucy Crisilio and Robert Wells, both of whom are activists. Lucy is a director of the Alternative to Incarceration and Detention Programs at the Center for Community Alternatives, and Robert Wells is a, a 40-plus-year practicing federal criminal defense practitioner. Okay. Let's get into some of these stats real quick. Let's get them uh, out of the way, and I am going to ask for help in uh, in, in interpreting this this stuff. And let's let me call up. Let's see, our producers did such, did such a great job in uh, putting this stuff together. Okay, so first of all, uh, to give a sense of our level of incarceration in the United States, uh, we incarcerate right now almost 800 people per 100,000. So. Uh, to give you a sense of how that relates to some other countries, uh, Sweden incarcerates approximately one-eighth of that number per capita. France incarcerates approximately one-fifth of that number on a per capita basis. Australia incorporate, uh, incarcerates approximately one-quarter of that number on a per capita basis. Germany in- incarcerates approximately one-sixth of that number on a per capita basis. Why did I pick those countries? By the way, we could go on and on. Canada, we could even talk about developing world countries, Brazil and India and so forth, all of which incarcerate way less people on a per capita basis. And here's why I mentioned those na- those countries. Those countries all have, by every objective me- metric, better public safety. Less crime, less violence, less recidivism. So is it working? Is mass incarceration working? Doesn't seem like it. If you want to get a sense of the countries that are even anywhere near us on a per, per capita incarceration basis, you're talking about places like El Salvador, Rwanda, 
Much lower Russia and China, but they're closer to us. Not a good list, guys. Not a good list. Okay. Another stat here. When did this start? So incarceration has been a part of our criminal justice system since the implementation of our Constitution, obviously with protections like habeas corpus and the Eighth Amendment against cruel and unusual punishment. But it was really starting of the drug wars in, or the war on drugs, I should say, in the late 1970s, 1980s, and particularly with the spike in the 1994 uh, criminal justice bill, where we went from relatively high kind of mid-range incarceration levels of the developed world to, you know, being the king of incarceration uh, uh, worldwide. And that's mainly, Robert, correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding from the research going to the show is that there were kind of three factors there, and I think it's important for listeners to understand this so it doesn't seem like it's all anecdotal and we're a bunch of mushy liberals thinking that, you know, we should not incarcerate people. Um, this is really disturbing. Number one, drug offenses. So in 1980, there were 41,000 people uh, that were incarcerated at the federal level for drug uh, use. In 2019, that number's 431,000. Okay? Now, Lucy was just talking about, you know, alternative pro around addiction. Like, is the right way to deal with someone who's addicted using drugs, even if it's illegal to incarcerate them? I don't think it passes any kind of common sense test. Okay. Number, factor number two. These, uh, federal incentives and funding. It was massive federal, you hear the thunder here in New York. Wow. Massive federal funding in the 1994 criminal justice bill that toured to state and municipal levels to build prisons and jails. Kind of bu- you build it and they will come. So huge incentives from federal funding as well as state funding to build facilities to incarcerate people in. And that was tied also into a movement around truth in, quote, quote, unquote, truth and sentencing act. I, I hate these types of titles, by the way, in legislation that, you know, are like it's euphemistic, like truth and sentencing sounds good. Right. But what it did is it enhanced it is it's a movement that's decades old and has hampered judges abilities, ability to have uh, compassion and take into uh, account the arc of someone's life and different factors in incarceration and kind of uh, tied into this concept often of mandatory minimums. Okay, so those three concepts, war on drugs or incarcerating people that are using drugs, not just dealing drugs. Um, number two, incentives to put people in jail, financial and budgetarily, budgetary. Um, and number three, mandatory minimums in sentencing and so-called truth in sentencing. Robert, did I get it right? Is that is that why we started mass incarceration starting in 1980? I think you're right. Uh, and in 1987, I believe the um, sentencing guidelines on the federal level through Edwin Meese and Congress were enacted. And what happened on federal level is that they made these rules and came up with a chart with your criminal history across the top and your guideline range uh, coming from the offense levels on the side. And it looks like a bus schedule. And they were telling these judges, here's what you'll do. You'll assign these points, you see, and you'll assign these criminal histories as well. And then you'll put people in jail for these amounts. Right. And it is uh, not discretionary judge. And uh, immediately some judges resigned saying, you don't need me anymore because you're going to sentence people in this mechanistic adding machine way that has nothing to do with humanity or anything to do with the causes or the individuals involved. And it grew and it grew, but 
in in time, and I'm talking decades, it became clear in Booker versus the United States that the United States Supreme Court said, no, it is not mandatory, and courts need discretion to sentence people for who they are when taking into account all the surrounding facts and circumstances and their background and history and characteristics. And so we've begun, even in the federal system, where we had this war on drugs uh, and all these other crimes as well, to come back and ameliorate that and see it doesn't work. It doesn't do the trick. And when Robert, you say... Sorry to interrupt. When you say it doesn't work, I, I wish that listeners, I wish we were, were also on uh, video maybe someday because you'd see this trend line I have on my screen. You see incarceration going up starting in 1980. You're right, late 80s, early 90s, big spike, uh, and then just continues to trend up in the United States. And at the same time, you the, the line is a little bit more wobbly but there's a steady flat and then down metric in many measures of public safety. In other words, we're jailing a whole bunch more people and we're living in a less safe place. So absolutely, it's not absolutely so. And we have these mandatory minimums you alluded to a little while ago. And you know what happens? There are incentives built into the sentencing guidelines federally where the big kingpins can cooperate with all the information they can give and assistance they could provide. But the poor little people down uh, way below who didn't have power, who weren't involved on huge levels, are the ones who end up facing mandatory minimums. And so we're filling up these prisons with people with perhaps no criminal record, no violence, but they don't have this, this species. This, this currency to, to give, to cooperate against other people up the chain for them so they fill up the prison. Yeah, and, and any it's, listeners interested in that, that, that perverse moral hazard and it feeds into the plea bargain system, please go on to SoundCloud uh, and check out our episode on the plea bargain system, which really was eye-opening in that in that regard. Robert, I am looking at another quote around about the concept of it working, because I'm sure there are listeners that consider themselves law and order, and I do too. Perhaps ironically, my, or people might think ironically, and I just think we ought to be smart about everything we do, from the way we build electric cars, yeah. the way we build highways, or we, we prevent flooding, to the way that we deal with with crime and punishment. And what we're doing is not smart. So here's here's the most shocking thing that I read in prepping uh, for for this show. There was a Pew Research Institute study several years ago, uh, and it, it uh, polled over 5,000 uh, judges at all levels, federal, uh, state, county, across the United States. This is the United States. And it asked all of them a number of questions, and one of them was to rate whether they um, don't agree to strongly agree in a four-point system of whether sentencing is exaggerative. Right now, in other words, are we are, are sentences longer than they should be, or 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 cooler than they should be? And there are a variety of ways they got it at, at this question. Sixty-eight percent of judges in judges, not defense attorneys, not social activists, not formerly incarcerated individuals, sixty-eight percent of judges in the United States strongly agreed that sentencing is exaggerative right now in the criminal justice system. So even the folks that are responsible for managing the system are telling you it isn't working. The thing is, of course, our judiciary branch answers to the legislative branch. 
So, Lucy, when it comes to the alternative, we can't just present a problem here. When it comes to the alternative, what are the systems, what, what can we do legislatively? Like, what, what can be done to actually improve public safety and reduce mass incarceration? So to the question of public safety, I think it's important to talk about the interconnectedness between mass incarceration and violence and kind of going back to some some earlier points. When we look at studies that measure individual drivers to violence, there are some really core factors to consider. That shame, isolation, taking away someone's opportunity to meet their economic needs, and exposure to more violence, right? So when you look at the the, the prison system, what that you mean, does you mean is when they're in prison, they're exposed people. to when they're in prison, they're exposed to more violence. When correct, so they're not only to more violence, but exposed to these different drivers to violence. Yet we still kind of use um, incarceratory sentences um, with the guise of rehabilitation, not realizing that that interconnectedness of perpetuating violence and what that does to the reentry process. Is is the is the approach of oh, I know this right now for example in New York City Mayor De Blasio I was watching him this morning in his morning briefing talking about the Rikers Island crisis and for those of you who aren't in the New York area you might not be aware we, there's a a local uh, jail you know holding uh, place until people are uh, arraigned or or, or uh, sentenced in in criminal cases and often jails are worse than prisons because they don't have the type of facilities and programs and mental health support and Rikers Island has had 12 deaths there in, in the recent past. It's, it's just, by all measures, a, 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 a horrible implementation of, uh, of incarceration. And there's this debate going on about letting people go, but whether they represent a risk um, to public safety, whether they re- represent a risk to the community. Lucy, are there objective measures? Like, how do you convince someone who might be listening and say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all for rehabilitation, but I, it's not worth the risk of a criminal reentering the community and hurting someone? Do we have statistically, sociologically, are we adept at assessing that risk? Absolutely. And both ATI programs as well as supervised release programs, as part of their own process, they do use validated instruments and risk assessments in determining uh, whether a person is suitable for a particular community-based service, whether it is part of a disposition or as part of them being out in the community getting services while the case is, is still pending. So that's something that it's, it's in a partnership with, with clinicians and experts as part of this process who are part of those of those screenings and determinations and recommendations. And how, how did, how's that done? Is that like psychographic? Does someone like go in and answer a questionnaire or meet with a psychologist? It, it can't just be, you know, exact, you know, the, the instant offense, what, what the crime, the crime that was committed is there has to be some other kind of review. How does that actually happen? Absolutely. And that's a great question because the risk in the context of a previous legal history is only, is only a fraction of it. Right. What what we really want to consider is a, a holistic approach that involves not only the interview with the individual, but also collateral interviews with family members to really get a sense of what is this person's background and needs, what programming was perhaps instituted in the past and what worked and didn't work. So it really has to be tailored um, to offer that individualized approach and assessment. 
We're going to take another break in a minute. We're talking about prison cells, internal alternatives to prison cells. Do prison cells work? Does mass, does incarceration even work? Does it prevent more crime or does it actually maybe increase crime at the end of the day? We're on with Robert Wells and Lucy Criseliu, activists, experts on alternatives to incarceration in our criminal justice system. We've gotten some, we have some good texts, comments, and questions which we'll get to after the break. You can also call 718-303-9090. That's 718-303-9090 and participate in this discussion. We'll be right back. Footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. All right, we're back on equal footing. Do prison cells cure? We're talking about alternatives to incarceration in America. We're going to take a caller on line three. Let me throw out one other stat, get your reaction, Robert. One of the interesting things that's come out of research on mass incarceration and alternatives to incarceration is the concept of people aging out of crime. Research shows that crime starts to peak in mid to late teenage years and then begins to decline when individuals are in their mid-20s and, the, and, sh- and the crime rate drops very sharply as adults reach their 30s and 40s and yet long sentences effectively overlap with that time in which people would be naturally kind of aging out of crime. And I know that may sound a little actuarial for folks, but ultimately we make policy decisions based on actuarial data. And so what happens is when we mass incarcerate, um, we don't reduce often the kind of crimes that we're trying to reduce in terms of, uh, uh, you know, violence and systemic violence in communities. We may reduce youth crimes and particular type of drug crimes, but we don't actually overall often uh, improve public safety. Robert, have I stylized that too much? Is that generally right? No, I think you are. Uh, you're on point when you're talking about that. Uh, I, I don't have a question that that's, that's not right. Um, my own observations in almost 50 years of this and watching everything change from the Supreme Court to the sentencing laws to the Rockefeller drug laws that are repealed because they didn't work to um, the federal sentencing guidelines and now our fight against mandatory minimums that don't leave judges any room to work. Um you're absolutely right. And Lucy, you were talking before about the fact that people are exposed to 
crime-inducing vectors, let's say. Those are my words. While they're in prison, they're exposed to violence, they're exposed to drugs, they're not getting mental health care and so forth. They're often coming out much worse than they went in, which is the opposite of what we're trying to uh, achieve. What about uh, physical and sexual violence statistically? Like what percentage, if, give us some sense, if you can, of an incarcerated, maybe it's different by gender, an incarcerated man, an incarcerated woman in America, what percentage of the time are they subject to violence while they're incarcerated? What what percent of the time are they assaulted? I think we may have lost Lucy, and so we'll come back to that. Oh, I hope not. Yeah, hopefully she'll call back in. How uh, how about you, Robert? Do you you have some, can you reflect some knowledge? I don't think people... uh... I don't think people quite understand what to, what it is to be incarcerated. Now, I'm not speaking to you, Dove. Uh, you have firsthand knowledge. You have suffered. You have been victimized in prison. In, in the penitentiary, it is hard to keep people safe. First of all, there's the overcrowding. Second of all, the kind of... Um, way people are grouped, they may even become new societies of gangs in prison. And it may almost be impossible to stay out of those. And we have people who are by their nature vulnerable, who are nonetheless sentenced to time in the penitentiary, and it may be the end of their lives. Not only that they don't get rehabilitated in any way that translates back to the the real world outside the penitentiary, but they are in danger that people who've never experienced it, seen it, uh, dealt with, they're just not going to be able to to hear your words uh, in, in on the level that they'll really get it. One of the saddest things that I read in preparation for this show were the stats, anecdotes, and 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 robust statistics around recidivism. And how the 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 longer someone is incarcerated, um, the more apt they are, uh, in many cases, to be recidivist, which is the opposite again of what we intend. And the fact that often um, people will go in for lesser crimes and and commit uh, more severe crimes after. Because what do you do after you've spent ten or twenty years? You have no other reference point for life. Your network is often a criminal network. We're going to take a caller on line three, and I'm going to try not to drop the caller. Caller, you're you're on. Good evening, though. Stan. How nice are you? First voice. of all, let me congratulate you on uh, your situation, the finalization of it. Uh, correct? I heard Thank you on. Thank uh, you. Thank you, Stan. And, from the and, but, yeah, uh, he, here's, here's the point that he's missing and she's missing. This conversation for almost 30 minutes is about those who are incarcerated. That, hello, what happened? You're here. You're, we're, oh, okay, we're here. I heard something. Yeah. I think somebody else got off. Uh, that's what I've been hearing. I don't hear anything about the victims. Fair There's right. nothing being talked about here on victims. The uh, gentleman who has been speaking uh, basically said that Prison, you know, prison and incarceration is for one major thing, to punish. Okay? To punish. That's it. 
Although to be, don't do the to, crime to, to and you fair, don't do the time. I, I hate, you know, I don't like interrupting you. Sure, not I, a problem. Just to, sure. to help, because it may shape your question. I was trying to take a more statistical approach on the show as opposed to anecdotal. And, and when I'm talking about public safety and the fact that our streets are getting less safe in many cases and that there's yeah, more gun crime, that, that is, that is reference to the victims. Their comments are more geared towards what can we do to get these, you know, to change the way people are incarcerated or this or that, I mean, related to the criminal, to the person who's going in. I heard nothing here about the victims. He's more worried and she was more worried about programs for the incarcerated. I don't. If they don't commit the crime, they don't need the program and they're out in the open. So I have no sympathy. I mean, his, he's been in this in the legal profession for over 35, 40 years. I don't think he's get, get learned a thing. I mean, if you're if you're a, if you're a victim, I think you need to speak to the victim. This and may seem see, like a, a a setup or a naive question. I'm not asking. No, I'm no, no. Sure. My question, I'm a preamble. <laughs> I, I I love the fact that you uh, called in and asked this question because I think it's probably on a lot of people's minds. So let me ask you this, Dan. Is the victim better off if the, let's make it personal, someone commits a crime against someone else and the perpetrator goes to jail and they then come out over a long period of time, not rehabilitated, but more likely to commit the crime. How how does that help the victim? We're not talking about not punishing people. We're talking about punishing people, but finding alternatives that work programmatically if so that somebody, they're less likely to commit crimes. Just a minute. If somebody rapes your sister. God forbid. I'm, uh, you know I don't mean. Someone rapes your sister and she's killed by this guy. God forbid. You want to figure out a way how to rehabilitate this guy? Yes. I, uh, well, then there's yes, because wrong if with they not come, me, well, hang on. Not but if me. They, but God forbid, I know it's a. He's happy. How can you, you think? Because no, if no, they listen ca- to what you said. Let, let me you let, wanna, let me finish. Let me finish. If they come out on the other side of their incarceration, and they then, God forbid, rape another three people. That, in, that that's not that doesn't serve anybody's purpose. It doesn't serve the family's purpose. It doesn't serve society's purpose. Unless you're going to kill them, and I do want to. By the way, I've got some great text questions. Okay, yeah. all right. So that's a fair but point. Your, your your answer is somewhat with all this, you know, it's somewhat pathetic. You'd let you want to rehabilitate the guy, of course, after what he's done to your sister. Not Unless me. we're going to kill him. Unless we're oh, going to no, kill him, I'm I don't want him to commit other crimes. If I'm in a state that doesn't do the death penalty, then 25 to 30 years is okay by me, and let him stay in prison. I, I, you, if you took a bet today, you asked a hundred people whether they agree with you or me, you know they'll agree with me. Oh, I agree that they'll agree with you. Meaning, that's why I wanted to do the show. Because I think okay, there's I a, a, I there that. is a, and anyway, that's I'm the happy prevalent about point your of situation. Yeah. You know I'm happy about No, and Stan, you know I love you. And I love the fact that, you're, that, you're, that you <laughs> anyway, uh, stirred up. Anyway, that's the point. That's let me, let me ask our here. guest, let me, let me, let me ask our right, guest, sure. uh, I'm going to kind of get onto your side for a second. So, so, so Robert, uh, why wouldn't we, should, why don't we go the opposite direction? If we know that you know someone commits a violent crime and they they get out many years later and they're more likely, in fact, because of the way our system works, they're more exposed to violence. It's more become a way of life. Should we go the opposite direction and just and um, increase the scope of the death penalty or have or have sentences go longer so that by the time they get out they're eighty and they're more unlike you know very unlikely to commit? Why not go the other direction and be more severe? 
in our punishment. First of all, I wanted to say hi to Stan. How are you? How are you? What a spirited person. I'm very pleased to meet you. It's Uh, Thursday. (laughs) And and by the way, caller on line one, be patient. We're going to get to you in a minute. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no. Uh, (laughs) Go ahead. Dan, I wanted to say that uh, we were talking uh, in very uh, focused terms about uh, prison and such, and we weren't being asked about victims. And I'm going to have Lucy talk about some circumstances where Within the context of disposing of a criminal case, we have involved the victim. Yes, the defense has gone out and talked to the victims. Because of the three things, Stan, that they should do, and well, the judges tell us that we should do in punishment, or sentencing is punishment, and uh, rehabilitation, and restitution. Now, I know money is a poor poor substitute for true justice, but it is one of those things. So sometimes we have gone out and and met with the victim, sadly in uh, death cases with their families, and we have talked with them about the circumstances, we've talked to them about our people, we've talked to them about the case, we've talked to them about the system. And I and I got to tell you, not simply trying to contradict you, Stan, but they have uh, come to understand and make recommendations with us. Now, to me, that, when it can be done, is a really just system. Yeah, they're increasingly uh, organizations that are involving victims in criminal justice reform to the point that that Stan made, which is, you know, people actually don't, they they want the punishment to fit the crime, and they don't want other people to be victims later. It's, It's a complex it's a complex topic. Stan, thank you as always for, for your call. Let's take caller Thanks, on. Dan. <laughs> let's take caller on line one. Line one, you're on the Is that end. me? Yes, that's you. Is that me? Yes. Is that me? Yes, you're on. Go ahead. Hi. My name is, okay, hi, hi. My name is Carol. Hi. Hi, Carol. Uh, listen, I would like to try to help the previous caller understand that what we were not saying is let people commit crimes and go free, we're talking about public health. And we're trying to figure out the way to keep the society safer in spite of the fact that crime statistics have not gone down. And so since we know that incarcerating people, we incarcerate over 2.3 million people in this country, and it has not stopped crime, why not, as you said, go the other way? Why not look at the causes, the systemic causes for crime, and try to fix it before it even comes about? Why don't we uh, uh, increase funds to preschool and after-school programs and programs that are going to get kids involved with education Instead of being on the street in gangs, because right. they have nowhere else to go. A Carol, I really, play. I really appreciate you reframing it because I, I want listeners to understand this program is not about being soft on crime. In fact, I would argue it's the opposite. We, we, we have, we are, we have a, under 5% of the world's population, but we incarcerate like 25% of the world's, uh, of the world incarcerated population. And yet, our streets are amongst the least safe in the developed world. You have to go to the developing world, the third world, 
defined violence levels that you see in the United States. That's gun violence, street violence, etc. That's that means the system's not working. It, 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 so to be tough on crime, it means that we don't want crime to happen, right? That, that's isn't that the goal exactly. of the criminal justice to prevent crime? So we have something that's not mm-hmm. working. So I'm just encouraging we look at it a different way. It's also incredibly expensive. Like to, to your point, Carol, like the resources, some of these I didn't have time to even touch on. Two hundred thousand dollars a year to send house a person in jail. Right. It's like it's like quadruple when, when the average cost of sending someone to college. Only, when treatment is only about sixteen to seventeen, eighteen thousand dollars a year for that same period of time. And people come out on the other side of it. They come out having dealt with their traumas, with their anger. They come out interested in a life, and they come out interested in thriving and, and giving back and reunifying with their family. And, 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 and so we have a choice to make as a country, as, as a world, you know, uh, you know, to incarcerate people in a program that just keeps feeding this machine that does not work, where all this money is going into it, that could be on the street feeding kids, yeah. educating kids, Programs for people yeah. who are incarcerated, for program, I'm sorry, for people who are addicted, people people who have been uh, sexually and physically abused and traumatized. That causes them. It also to- punishes people that are not the perpetrator because you have generational uh, trauma. Because you have kids have parents in jail, you have family members and friends, you have support systems that are affected. Often people are jailed far away. And there are some laws that are starting to, to address that issue from their family and support network. You're punishing kids. You're punishing other Absolutely. people, too. Hey, let me give you one second. In college, uh, and you're punishing five. society. Yeah, exactly. That's what we wanted to try to get into. I have a feeling this is going to end up being a uh, multiple series show because it's a touchy subject. Carol, thank you. Thank you for your call. We're going to get to you on line five in a second. But let me read out another stat, and then we're going to take a take caller after uh, the break. Here's one of the reasons why I think that the system doesn't work because it isn't fair across demographics. If you are born in just raw stats, if you are born in the United States as a white woman, you have a one in 111 chance of being incarcerated in your lifetime. If you are born in the United States as a black woman, you have a one in 18 chance of being incorporated incarcerated in your lifetime. Okay. If you are born in the United States as a white man, you have a 1 in 17 chance of being incarcerated in your lifetime. If you are born as a black man, you have a 1 in 3 chance of being incarcerated in your lifetime. I get it. I know people are probably all angry that there's lots of those are confounding variables. I'm a stats person, right? So like you're, you're mixing up correlation and causation and so forth. I get it. I know. I, get, I know there are other there's, – there's, there is a mixing up. There's other issues involved here around levels of poverty and organization and society and so forth. But the numbers are too friggin' disparate. I'm sorry. It's just it's just not fair. It's It looks a little bit like Jim Crow. Okay. We lost that caller on line five. I'm sorry. We're going to get to some text questions. We'll be right back on talking about prison cells. Do they work? Does incarceration work? Lucy Crisilio, Robert Wells on equal footing. We'll be right back. Like a drum. In some old midnight choir I have tried In my way To be free Like a worm Alright, well, I love that song. 
DocuVax is been a great has been a great sponsor of Equal Footing. Thank you to DocuVax and thank you DocuVax for what you're doing for public health. DocuVax helps you take control of your medical files, information around your immunization records, your lab results, x-rays, MRIs, without having to hand over the power of your information or the, the control of your information to the government or your insurance company or even your doctor. Your healthcare information belongs to you. It does not belong to the government. It does not belong to a healthcare provider. It does not belong to an insurance company. So the DocuVax system, that's D-O-C-U-V-A-X, gives you an easy-to-use digital medical locker. It's accessible on your smartphone or your laptop, and it allows you to safely store and validate all of your basic medical information. Again, vaccines, lab results, x-rays, MRIs, information about allergies, blood type, etc. Go to DocuVax.com or download the DocuVax app on the iOS, the iPhone or Android stores or call. 833-859-1933. That's 833-859-1933. For as little as $6.99 per month, DocuVax subscribers can privately access all their medical records. And here's the best part. First of all, it's on a secure HIPAA compliant facility. So it's safe. No one else can get to it. And as a DocuVax subscriber, medical professionals, doctors and nurses are available to you 24 hours a day, 365 days a year to validate your vaccine records, your blood test, or anything else in your locker. So put an end to worrying if you or someone you care about is up to date in a particular vaccine, a blood test, or an important preventative screening. Take control of your medical file. Sign up at docuvax.com or call. And group discounts are available if you're an organization, small business, for example, that wants to give a benefit, an HR benefit to employees. And you can get group discounts by mentioning that you heard about it on an equal footing and calling 833-859-1933. That's DocuVax at 833-859-1933. Operators are standing by. I've been caught, but I'm keeping on, keeping on All right. I think we've got a beautiful caller, line five. Can you hear me, line five? Let's see if I need to do something. See, uh, line five, you're on the air. All right, maybe not. Uh, let's see if, all right, well, we'll, if maybe someone will call back in, or is that, is that line four, Dimitri? Let me see if I can help there. Uh, line four, you're on the air. Can you hear me? Hello? Yep, you're on. You're on equal footing. Welcome. Yeah, how you doing? How's everything? Uh, my name is Q. Q, Um, I'm calling on the, uh, I'm okay, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm calling on the first, um, Guy that was talking about, how about the victims? Mm-hmm. Um, I was a victim, right? Um, I handled my situation in, in a violent situation. Uh, I did time, I did 15 years. I did 15 years, and the only thing I learned in jail was a lot of violence, a lot of hustle, a lot of negative stuff. So in First of all, Q, welcome back. Welcome back. Hey, how you doing? Well, no, welcome back to society. I'm glad you're out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm blessed. The only thing I learned out in society is these programs. We need these programs for people that come home, the youth, female, male, everybody. Right? Because I think these programs will help out us 
to build ourselves up. Let me ask you something, Q. One of the things yes. we, we didn't have a chance to address here, and we're, we're, we don't have much time left, is that when you right. are a formerly incarcerated individual, I don't, re- I don't think people right. realize how much you have stacked against you. Like it's, it's hard to get a job, it's hard to get credit, it's hard to open a bank account. Sometimes it's you, you can't exactly. vote in a lot of states. Uh, you, you often have to report to like a landlord and so forth. So it's like it, it you not only been off, off out of society for what was it, 16 years, you said? Uh, but you, you also don't have basic tools. To get, have you encountered that and how have you overcome it? No, that's what I'm, that's what I'm coming to. These programs, regardless, they don't even, um, look at you as a criminal. They, they look at you as a person. These programs, I thank God I, I, I did them programs. They helped me out. They helped me with my ID. The ID was the most important thing because I was nobody in the world. You understand? So these programs helped me out with my ID, with um, using the train. They showed me a lot of stuff, and I did their programs, right? Um, they believed in me, right? They believed in me. And they gave me a shot right. in working with them. You're talking about like right? the types, Lucy. It sounds like Q is talking about the types of programs that you're involved in. We are almost done on time. Give us, give us a, a couple of, of really concrete examples of the type of programs that, that Lucy, in your experience, work for people like Q or people in Q's position. Absolutely, and and thank you for your call. Um, Really, what we're talking about is some comprehensive support around reentry and, and stabilizing needs and what that looks like. Um, it can look anywhere from, as you mentioned, documentation, right, being able to navigate that process, to housing, um, counseling services, to really process um, the emotional aspect of returning back uh, to the community um, and adjusting to that. Yeah, it, it, I think that the big part of the equation, if we're going to continue, as that commentator said, you know, riding the bicycle in one gear, the prison gear, then we have to do better on the other side of prison. We've got to reintegrate people better. Otherwise, all it is is an obvious, predictable, vicious cycle. I want to thank my guests, Lucy Crisiliu and Robert Wells, for openly talking about alternatives to incarceration in crime and punishment in America. I feel like we could do multiple shows on this on this topic. Robert, give us sure. for, for the most cynical caller. You have, literally have 20, 30 seconds. The most cynical caller who's still not buying it. Give us 20 seconds on why we should endorse alternatives to incarceration. Well, I, I don't know that I could do that. But what I would point out to these people um, is that we need to help people not do this again. We help, we have to help people not get worse. We have to do no harm. And the penitentiary results in harm. Listen to your last caller who I'm so glad he survived just as you were able to survive. And this is not, this is not about ignoring the victims. This is about preventing future victims. Lucy, Robert, thank you for being on equal footing. We'll see everyone next week. You betcha. Thank you. So long. Thank you both. Should I stay or should I go? Should I stay or should I go now? Should I stay or should I go now?